You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Bariatric surgery and a baby on board? With me today is Dr. Colleen Kelly, a gastroenterologist at the Center for Women's Gastrointestinal Disorders at Women and Infants Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. In 1991, the NIH Conference on Gastrointestinal Surgery for Severe Obesity recommended bariatric surgery for those with a BMI greater than 40, as well as for those with a BMI greater than 35 with significant comorbidities. Today, more than 150,000 procedures are performed annually in the United States. Many of these obesity procedures are performed on young women who subsequently become pregnant. Our guest, Dr. Kelly, manages many of these young women. Welcome, Dr. Kelly. Hello, Lauren. Now, in a perfect world, of course, women would be in ideal weight and nutritional status prior to conceiving, but we don't live in a perfect world. So the first question is, is it appropriate for obese women considering pregnancy to undergo bariatric surgery? As you know, there's a very high rate of obesity in this country. The majority of people in the U.S. are overweight, and now obesity rates are above 30%. And we know that obesity does pose risks in pregnancy, not limited to gestational diabetes and hypertension. And we know that bariatric surgery is highly effective as a treatment of obesity and its complications. More effective, in fact, than diet, exercise, and other medical management of obesity. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology does advocate weight loss prior to conception and does acknowledge bariatric surgery as a promising obesity treatment. So it certainly is something that is being done and should be considered in women who have failed non-surgical weight loss. Yeah, I'm curious, a BMI of 40 is the usual cutoff for bariatric surgery, but because of the potential maternal and fetal morbidity associated with obesity and pregnancy you've alluded to, do you think the cutoff should be even lower, 35, 30? Well, if patients have significant comorbidities associated with their obesity, such as diabetes, sleep apnea, cardiomyopathy, or uh, severe joint disease, those patients with a BMI of 35 are candidates for bariatric surgery. But what if they don't have one of those comorbidities? Just the fact that they're going to become pregnant, I think, makes them at higher risk. What are your thoughts on that? You have to remember these are big surgeries, and the surgeries themselves have high rates of morbidity involved. When everything goes smoothly and patients lose weight, we're happy, things go well, things go great. But in the immediate postoperative period, certainly there's a lot of risk. These are high-risk surgical candidates just by the fact that they are so obese and that they could develop wound infections, pulmonary embolism, catastrophic problems after the surgery such as leaks. And so you don't want to send someone for this surgery too lightly. And though I agree it would be optimal for people to go into a pregnancy at a healthy weight, this isn't always achievable and sending someone to surgery to achieve that goal, especially with a borderline BMI. So what surgical options are currently available and which procedure do you think is most appropriate for a woman who is considering pregnancy? Okay, the way to think about the surgical options, currently they break down in two major categories. A restrictive type operation where the gastric capacity is decreased and thereby limits calorie intake. Examples of these are vertical banded gastroplasty or the more common laparoscopic adjustable gastric banding or lap band. The second category are malabsorptive procedures that work by decreasing nutrient absorption and the 
digital ileal bypass was a classic example of this, though it's no longer done. Biliopancreatic diversion is another. But the most common procedure done now is sort of a combination of the two. It's the gastric bypass, the RUIN-Y. And in that, you achieve a restrictive operation by configuring a small gastric pouch. This is created and then drained via a RUIN-Y small bowel arrangement. It is combined with a malabsorptive procedure where the RUIN-Y limb connects with a biliopancreatic limb about 100 centimeters distal to the gastrojejunostomy. And it's in this common channel where the two limbs of small bowel come together where major digestion and absorption of nutrients takes place. The effectiveness of RUIN-Y gastric bypass is mostly attributable to the restrictive operation, but the malabsorption certainly helps. And current data shows that the gastric bypass runway operation is more effective in achieving long-term weight loss. But do you feel that that is the most appropriate one for the woman considering pregnancy as well as just the general obese population? With the lap band, there's a lot of things about it that are attractive. It's certainly a less invasive procedure. It's adjustable. So if people have problems afterwards with nausea or vomiting, or you want to try to tailor weight loss a little bit more, it's easily adjustable. And so for that reason, it can be an attractive option for many patients. I think that the decision of what type of surgery a patient should have, even someone planning pregnancy, it's a matter that's usually best left to the bariatric surgeon. They take individual patients into consideration, what their goals are, what comorbidities they may have in deciding which procedure to offer. And how long should someone wait after a successful bariatric procedure before conceiving? Well, there is a period of very rapid weight loss in the immediate postoperative period, and the theoretical concern is that this could cause a malnourished mother or malnourished fetus. Um, also, there's another risk of getting pregnant too soon in that this could decrease the amount of weight loss that someone will achieve from the surgery. So most patients are advised to delay conception for 12 to 18 months postoperatively, though the data does show that there have not been adverse outcomes in women who've gotten pregnant sooner. Yeah. And the other interesting thing, too, is a lot of obese women are infertile because they're obese, and they're not careful about contraception because they think they don't need to be. And I think an important point also is to let these women know that they are now potentially more fertile, that they've lost weight. Absolutely. We know that there's a strong association between obesity and fertility and a lot of that because of polycystic ovarian syndrome and ovulation. And this often resolves postoperatively and these people become more fertile. So contraception counseling is very important. Also, there's some suggestion that absorption of oral contraceptive agents, patients who've undergone gastric bypass with brown wine may not be as effective and therefore other forms of contraception may need to be discussed. You are listening to a discussion about the management of pregnant women who have undergone bariatric surgery on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking with Dr. Colleen Kelly, a gastroenterologist at the Center for Women's Gastrointestinal Disorders at Women and Infants Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, Dr. Kelly, once someone conceives, I assume there are a number of possible problems that need to be monitored. So let's start with nutritional deficiencies in post-bariatric surgery patients, and specifically, what monitoring and supplementation is required in the post-bariatric patient who's now pregnant? Okay, this is primarily an issue with malabsorptive procedures. Patients who have a lap band should probably be followed the same way. Um, there are case reports of anemia, neural tube defects, and things like that in these babies, though the risk of that is not shown to be much higher than the community controls. We do recommend in all 
women who've undergone bariatric surgery who are reproductive age or pregnant that they take a 400 microgram folic acid supplement daily. Additionally, all women after bariatric surgery are usually treated with 1,000 milligrams per day of calcium supplement and a multivitamin. When they become pregnant, it's important to remember to add an iron supplement. And usually because of the malabsorptive aspect of the surgery, they'll require a little more iron than is traditionally given in pregnancy, somewhere between 50 and 100 milligrams of elemental iron a day. A regular prenatal vitamin can be continued and protein requirements will go up. So around 60 grams of protein is a goal. And do you do additional blood work, additional monitoring? Do you measure protein levels? Do you measure iron levels? Or do you just give everyone pretty much the same supplementation and assume that that's going to do it? Well, absolutely, these people do need to be monitored closely. Typically, we monitor iron levels, folic acid levels, vitamin D, and parathyroid hormone, as well as body weight. And most post-bariatric patients are managed closely by a nutritionist. Most bariatric surgeons operate post-op clinics where patients are followed closely for deficiencies. Many ultimately require treatment with B12, either injections or intranasally as well. So this is something that needs to be followed. You know, obese women are a particular risk for developing complications such as gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. Are screening considerations in this population the same as for in the non-bariatric population? Well, we know that the incidence of gestational diabetes is high, even in this postoperative population, somewhere between 8 and 16%, and this is because they are still obese, though they are less likely to develop gestational diabetes than obese controls who've not undergone bariatric surgery. You do need to consider in someone who's had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass type procedure that they may get dumping syndrome with the 50-gram oral glucose tolerance test. They may develop nausea, diaphoresis diarrhea and not be able to have that study. Instead, you could consider monitoring home glucose, both fasting and two-hour postprandial levels for a week between 26 and 28 weeks gestation to screen these patients. Do you recommend that only in women who are still obese despite having had surgery? Because certainly some women who, you know, may be a couple years off from their surgery and may be of normal weight, are they at increased risk? Or are they the same risk as a woman who's of that weight who never had bariatric surgery? Do we know that? The studies show that they still are at some increased risk compared to the general population, though I don't think that they've looked at that subset of patients specifically. Yeah, because it's kind of interesting. We always assume that the post-bariatric patient is still heavy, and very often they're thinner than you know, in their average population. Although truthfully, most patients who undergo bariatric surgery never do, quote, normalize their weight. Most will always be somewhat overweight when you look at these patients years down the road, and they can even regain weight with time. As an obstetrician, of course, we always say that anything that can happen to a, any woman can also happen to a pregnant woman. And for example, abdominal pain in a pregnant woman is not always preterm labor. You also have to consider appendicitis. So what problems are post-bariatric pregnant patients at increased risk for that are not unique to pregnancy, but may complicate their pregnancy? Well, one of the scarier late complications of obesity surgery are internal hernias. These are especially scary in the pregnant patient because they can come on very subtly at first. Symptoms can be nonspecific with just some epigastric pain, nausea, and vomiting, and imaging may not help you. We had a case of this, a patient in our practice late in the second trimester who developed an internal hernia. When this happens, they can develop small bowel infarctions and obstructions. And so you have to have a high index of suspicion for this complication. Though it's not common, you want to have a low threshold to involve the bariatric surgeon and they need to 
be willing to potentially even explore these patients to make that diagnosis because it is life-threatening. Other complications that we've seen in this practice, there was a patient with a gastric outlet obstruction from a lap band because of band slippage. Prolapse of the gastric wall through the band can also occur. What gestational age do you tend to see those sorts of problems? The internal hernias are, at least the case reports in the literature, have been described later in the second trimester, third trimester of pregnancy because of the mass effects of the baby and kind of moving things around in there. I think gastric outlet obstruction, the patient that we had, that occurred early in the pregnancy with her. It was mistaken for a while as just nausea and vomiting of pregnancy, and she actually lost 30 pounds before coming to us. The diagnosis was easily made, just contrast study. Contrast didn't pass easily beyond the band, and this was removed by the surgeon at 32 weeks. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Colleen Kelly, who has given us new insight into the medical management of pregnant women who have undergone bariatric surgery. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, Mm -hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.